0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, November 29th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors are Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, an end-of-year review of the Thrift Savings Plan. Also, from acquisition to personnel challenges, the Coast Guard still faces a lot of obstacles to meeting its missions. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. First up, though, the Defense Department's new Replicator Initiative can't wind up being just a one-time push to scale in technology and bridge the valley of death. Instead, it needs to be the new model for DoD. Georgetown University's Center for Security and Emerging Technology recently had a panel on DoD's Replicator program. Experts say the program needs to balance short- and long-term goals to really be successful or risk missing the mark. Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric is here with some details. Hey, Kirsten. Hello. So this is a relatively new initiative on DOD's part. A lot of people may not have heard of it. Why don't you bring us up to speed on exactly what it is and why it's important?
1: Yeah, so the replicator initiative was announced in August, and it aims to scale small, cheap, attributable drones in 18 to 24 months. So since we're about three months in, that would be the next 15 to 21 months. The department aims to have at least 2,000 drones, and the goal of Replicator is to put pressure on China and compete with its mass. And by mass, I kind of mean like the sheer quantity of the drones and other things that China has. The Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kathleen Hicks, recently said the department would choose which programs will be part of Replicator in the next few weeks. There was a congressional hearing in October, and during that, witnesses were pointing to the lessons the US could learn from Ukraine with its use of drones to help to help apply to replicator and replicator is important because it's trying to scale technology quickly which can be challenging for the government going back to that congressional hearing the general consensus between you know house representatives and industry witnesses is that the timeline is tight and ambitious so DOD will need to work quickly to accomplish its goals and the witnesses agree that Ukraine is a good example of what can be done when quickly deploying commercial drones and other technologies. But they question Replicator's ability to copy the success, in part because of red tape. So, you know, that kind of segues into what uh, Georgetown's Center for Security and Emerging Technology, you know, experts were saying in terms of how we'll determine if Replicator is successful.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that a bit. I mean, based on what you heard from these experts, what does that short-term and long-term success look like?
1: Yeah, in the short run, it needs to accomplish its goal of scaling cheap drones quickly. And in the long run, DOD should be able to use this as a model for either newer drone, newer versions of drones or to help leverage industry and quickly scale other technologies. At Georgetown University Center for Security and Emerging Technology panel um, on the program, Lauren Kahn, a senior research analyst says balancing these two successes will be important. Technically, a success at the
2: end of this, at the end of the 18 to 24 months, will be if the DoD has at least 2,000 autonomous, attributable, relatively cheap systems, right? And we can clearly see that. But what will it actually be a success? Will be whether they can, no pun intended, well, actually pun intended, replicate this system again elsewhere to use it for other systems and to go beyond that. Again, to regularly overcome this kind of valley of death that's so often spoken about to make sure that the DoD can actually access all of the resources that are available to it and that it can do so readily, more easily, more widely, and then can translate those lessons
3: learned across the department in a way that's a little bit more cohesive.
0: And again, Kirsten, leaning back on those experts, any specific ideas on, on how they can achieve both these long-term and short-term successes?
1: One way is through sending a steady demand signal to the Defense Industrial Base, which will help industry invest, innovate, and produce. Jarrett Riddick, a Senior Fellow at CSET and a former Principal Director for Autonomy in the DOD's Office of the Undersecretary for Research and Engineering, says the signal is important, especially coming from senior officials.
4: In industry, we see movement, too, in response to what industry calls a clear sort of intent, clear demand signal. And having that come from the depth sector sort of really codifies the clarity of that signal.
1: Meanwhile, Major Michael O'Connor from Space Force, who's also a Department of the Air Force fellow at CSET, says the steady demand helps industry and ultimately DoD.
5: In the longer term, past the 24 months, this really helps signal industry. If we're delivering in tranches and you expect every 24 months or so that there'll be a new new capability, a new tranche, this helps get at one of the problems that I think Dr. LaPlante uh, at ANS has, has identified, where you have huge waves of demand, for, demand out of the military for capabilities for either commodities or new systems every time the world gets extra interesting. And then you have these peace dividends where... Industry has to scale back because the DOD is scaling back. If you can have this constant demand signal, it's much easier to plan for. It's much more efficient. I think it also helps keep a more healthy industrial base. And ultimately, that'll also be useful as a a replicator uh, or as something we can replicate in the
0: future. And Kirsten, any other thoughts from uh, the panel that you heard from on ideas that uh, could help the department be successful here?
1: Yeah, one of the other things was they were saying it was important to make sure operators will know how to use the drones. And they were kind of saying you can have all the drones and mass that you want, but if you don't know how to use it or use it properly or as intended, it won't be effective.
5: In the near term, right in the next 18 to 24 months, if you know 2,000 plus drones show up on the, the Pentagon's doorstep, there's also a need to make sure that the operators who are going to use them are aware of what's coming down the pipe they know how to fit it into uh, any potential O plans or, you know, they've trained and know how to use it. There's a short term thing that needs to be accomplished as well. The fact that they're going out and talking to the combatant commands is certainly the first step in that right direction.
1: That was Major Michael O'Connor from Space Force, and he is also a Department of the Air Force fellow at CSET. Another thing mentioned during the panel is the importance of The innovation steering group to make sure all stakeholders are involved and have a voice and can help solve problems faster, too. Igor Mikulik-Torreira, director of analysis at CSET, says the steering group is a key element to this success.
5: There is this pot of money called the Rapid Defense Experimentation Reserve, right? That's several hundred million dollars. Again, back to the steering group can be the one who says, hey, this goes into that pot as a top priority to fund, there you've got another pot of money that's building into how you're going to develop these drones and develop the CONOPS, because the CONOPS has to develop at the same time and evolve.
1: So these are several things that, you know, DOD will need to do in the near future or more long term to ensure the program is successful beyond the two-year time period.
0: All right, Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric, thanks very much. Thanks, Jared. And you can find Kirsten's story online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still ahead on Federal News Network, from acquisition to personnel challenges, the Coast Guard still faces a lot of obstacles to meeting its missions. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. The Coast Guard is one of the smallest military services, but it's got a big mission. According to the Government Accountability Office, though, it's still struggling to meet that mission because of long-standing challenges in at least three major areas. Heather McLeod is a GAO director for Homeland Security and Justice Issues, and she's here with us now to talk through where things stand and how the service can improve Heather, thanks for doing this. And I know you recently testified about a few different aspects of the Coast Guard's challenges, including the acquisition area, the workforce area, and the technology area. I'm hoping we can hit briefly on all three, but let's let's start with acquisition since that's some of GAO's most recent reporting. Um, I think the upshot of what you reported over the summer is that they're going to face reduced operational capability. Some, I think, more than twenty years after they started a huge project to recapitalize. The cutter fleet bring us up to speed on on why they continue to be challenged in that in that acquisition project.
6: Yeah, so our most recent work looked at the new security cutters, which which are part of the law enforcement uh, mission, but support all the Coast Guard missions really. And um, we found you know delays in in uh, the schedule and cost uh, increases, uh, pretty large delays and cost increases across the the various assets and um you know what this what really happens to the coast guard when when this is going on is their their existing fleet is aging and so those are in need of greater maintenance and some of them are being taken out of service and so these delays really um you know affect their ability to carry out the missions and our reports in these areas had recommendations to the coast guard that they uh you know nail down the plans ahead of the acquisition process and that they update their their acquisition plans
0: and so, so it sounds like there's kind of three things going on all at once the new vessels are not coming online as quickly as they hoped that they would they're having to spend more money maintaining the legacy fleet and to some extent they can't even do that anymore so some of those cutters are going offline because they're simply not able to be kept in the fleet is that about right
6: correct yeah and it puts a lot of pressure on the the Coast Guard and you know its workforce which we which we commented on in this report about you know the Coast Guard is currently short its numbers it hasn't done the necessary workforce assessments that we've identified as part of their process uh, to identify where their people should be and um, and so they're they're really not helping themselves out here
0: yeah and, and as you point out in in the testimony that the service itself has, has recently been talking about a, a short workforce shortfall in the on the order of thousands of people similar to the challenges i think the other military services are facing but let's talk about what what you just said they they don't really have a good grasp on what they need and where they need people in what missions um what, what do they need to be doing better to get a handle on that
6: So the Coast Guard has a culture of making do Um, in the area of workforce planning. You know, our recommendations really lie in pointing back to the Coast Guard in their own process on determining uh, the workforce that they need. So they have this manpower requirements, determinations, and that's their official process. They've completed that process on 16% of the the workforce the last time we checked in with them. And so um, by doing these determinations that are a part of their own process and they they should be doing, uh, we think they would have a better grasp on where they need their people. And this is especially important right now when they, like you mentioned, they are facing a shortage.
0: And one thing that's always struck me as a little bit unusual about the Coast Guard is, is they, they tend to have a much lower proportion of their total workforce in the civilian area. They, they seem to rely a lot more on military manpower for pretty much everything than the other military services do. I don't know if that's an issue GAO has looked at specifically, but I, I'm imagining those sort of workforce mix questions are the sort of things you would want to look at in a comprehensive workforce assessment
6: indeed that's certainly an issue and we've looked at that um in you know limited areas of the workforce for example in our work on the uh, marine inspection workforce so the the coast guard personnel that go out and inspect vessels um they've had a perennial shortage uh you know in this area and they have employed civilians um for this particular workforce but again that's challenge they're having challenges even getting the civilian side Um, you know, due to the locations and some of the the other workforce challenges.
0: And let's wrap up by talking about some of the technology challenges here. Every federal agency, to some extent, faces technology debt problems. We talk about that with GAO a lot. In what ways are the Coast Guard technology challenges unique?
6: So one of their key data systems, Missile, uh, for example, is is well known to have uh, challenges even Uh, You know, getting the most basic information out of it. One of the uh, challenges that that it faces is the multi-mission nature of the Coast Guard. You know, they're going out and they're conducting various missions. Come back and recording it in more in this uh, data system that doesn 't allow for these multiple entries, and so uh, it makes it hard to be able to really analyze what the Coast Guard is doing in in an efficient way in this in this report we point out, and this is based on our prior work that even running a simple data query that that you and I would think would be easy for them, how many migrant interdictions are they doing can take hours for them to compile this and some manual um, labor entailed in that. And that should be, they should be able to just print that out um, in a more efficient manner. And so that data system in particular, uh, which is one of its key data systems, is, um, you know, going to be replaced soon, but it it has not uh, been replaced yet. So they're still using it and relying on it.
0: Yeah, and as you point out, the challenges go beyond missile. There's just underlying network infrastructure challenges too, right?
6: Absolutely, yep, including cybersecurity as we've raised across the federal government.
0: Heather McLeod is a director for Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. We'll post a link to the testimony we've been talking about at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federaldrive. Still ahead on Federal News Network, an end-of-year review of the Thrift Savings Plan. That's next on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, in for Tom. Back on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. For Thrift Savings Plan investors, 2023 showed some positive signs. The year also brought some changes to the iFund, more, Federal News Network reporter and co-host of the podcast, FedLife, talked with certified financial planner, Art Stein.
3: We know that there have been some pretty big changes to the iFund. Recently, the TSP board says it's going to improve the risk return profile. Just curious your thoughts on that. Do you think that's accurate or what impact will this have on participants who are invested in the iFund?
7: Well, it's definitely an improvement. The old index or the actually the current index for the iFund, Not a good index, hasn't been for many, many years. The TSP board has been trying to change it for some time, and they were going to change it a couple of years ago, but the new index invested in China and Hong Kong, and that was a political issue on the Hill, and many Congress members protested, and so the TSP just didn't do anything. Now they found an index or an index was created for them, which is also possible, that invests in the index that they wanted to use, but excludes any Chinese stocks or Hong Kong stocks, stocks of companies based in Hong Kong. So it's basically the same as they tried to do before. One of the reasons they needed to do this is because the i fund the current index was uh, so poorly constructed performance was not as good and because international stocks just weren't doing as well as us stocks us companies were doing better than foreign companies you know if you look at like the 15 year average annual rate of return it was 6% per year for the i fund it was 12.5% for the c fund that's you know twice as much So the current index only invests in developed countries and not all developed countries and only invests in the stocks of large companies. And for some reason, they excluded Canada from the list of developed countries, which I found very strange. The new index invests in twice as many countries, including a lot of developing countries and it's invested seven times as many stocks as the old index. If you look at the top 10 holdings in the new index compared to the current index, they're mostly the same. The three new ones are Taiwan Semiconductor, which is a great company that has monopoly on semiconductor manufacturing, Samsung Electronics, which most people have heard of, and Toyota, which is probably everybody has heard of. And the country weights are different. They have a lot less invested in Japan, United Kingdom, France, Switzerland, countries like that. So I'm glad they're doing this. It's going to take place next year, the changeover. TSP participants, I assume, will not have to do anything. I'm pretty sure they'll just change it. And I think people would be better off. Now, in terms of returns... They're, you know, really not hugely different. Uh, According to what the TSP put out, their press release, the average annual rate of return over the last five years for the new index would have been 4.2% compared to 3.5% for the old index. So 4.2 is better than 3.5, but not a huge difference. The new index is actually... Again, according to them, slightly more volatile than the old index, but not a big difference. You know, not one that I would consider significant or that anybody needs to worry about. So basically, it's a step forward for the TSP.
3: So, Art, given that this, you know, is a pretty significant change, you know, I know that TSP participants who are currently enrolled in the iFund, this will just transition over once that change takes place sometime in 2024. But do you anticipate or do you recommend that TSP participants maybe consider changes to their current investments, maybe invest more in the iFund as a result of this change?
7: That's a very good question. I think people should have international stock exposure. We certainly do it for all our investment clients. But this is still a very narrowly focused fund, and it's an index fund. So it means that they have just bought these companies probably because they're the largest in each market without any great attempt to see if they're the best companies or they're going to do better than other companies. And we have found that for international stock indexes, international stock funds, actively managed funds are a better bet than index funds, because it's such a huge marketplace. It's better to have someone actually making decisions.
3: Just speaking as well, you alluded to the political pressure that existed. I know this is something that the TSP board has been at least considering this change since 2017. So it's been six or so years now that they've considered changing the iFund. But do you think that the exclusion of Chinese investments is going to have an effect on the overall volatility or the performance of the benchmark index? Does that you know, change things for how it'll perform?
7: You know, Drew, it's a very interesting situation. You know, it's sometimes better to be lucky than smart. And I'm not saying that members of Congress are not smart. They are. But they wanted to exclude Chinese stocks for political reasons. And, you know, I did not disagree And it turns out that since that time, really, the Chinese market has not done well. I mean, certainly, TSB participants did not lose out as a result. According to these statistics, if they had been able to make the change to this new index five years ago, they would have been slightly better off, but not a big difference. But whether people want to switch a higher percentage of their assets into international, you know, I answer that question for my clients all the time. But I don't want to do it just in general, because you know it may be that international stocks in general continue to lag u s stocks, so if people go into more into the i fund, it might reduce the volatility of their overall portfolio, but it might also reduce the returns so that's the decision that people either need to make themselves or they need to consult a professional to help them make
3: another big topic for the t s p is the recent report on the TSP millionaires and the levels of those that are you know going on right now I think it's been actually quite a big increase since the number of TSP millionaires for 2022 uh, any insights into why that might be the case
7: well one very easy insight drew is that the market went up so one thing about TSP millionaires, that I've noticed, and it's not unexpected, is the people that do better are the ones that had a higher percentage invested in the stock funds, the C and the S and the I fund than the bond funds. And they were the people that didn't pull out when the markets crashed. But the other thing that you cannot deny is the number of TSP millionaires is very much a function of how long people have been investing. It's just that's the way investing is. You know, these are people didn't worry about the ups and downs of the markets. They just believe that stocks were outperformed and they've been working longer than the people who are not millionaires. And so they made good decisions, but then they've been investing for a long time.
3: So then if that's the case, if you're speaking to a federal employee who might be 25, 30 years old, they're just at the start of their career Do you recommend just kind of sticking with it, or what would you say they should do to try to eventually reach that TSP millionaire status?
7: Historically, you've been much better off having a higher percentage in the stock funds, not pulling money out in anticipation of a market crash or because the market had crashed. When we get stock market crashes, that's a good time to be buying. And also, People can be more aggressive with their bi-weekly investments. You know, even if they don't want too much in stocks, it doesn't mean that their bi-weekly investments shouldn't be more heavily concentrated to go to the stock funds because they're just putting in a smaller amounts every two weeks. And if the market goes down, they're buying. So they kind of want the markets to go down. You need to have a long-term outlook. And even for people who are getting ready to retire, Remember that, you know, you could retire at 65 and easily be alive at 95. People need to have a very long-term outlook on their retirement. And over 30 years, I don't know people don't expect stocks to outperform over a 30-year period compared to the bond funds.
3: Great. Well, Art, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today, and thanks for being here.
7: Okay, Drew, thank you for having me on.
0: That's certified financial planner Art Stein talking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead on Federal News Network, NASA wants to be your new favorite streaming app. That's next on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. Back on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. NASA is taking a page from big-time TV streaming services as it revamps its multimedia offerings. This month, the agency relaunched its long-standing NASA TV service. It's now called NASA+. Plus. There's a new mobile app to go with it, too. Rebecca Sermon's is executive producer for NASA TV, and she joins us now to talk more about it. Okay, Rebecca, a lot of uh, multimedia assets to talk about here today, but let's start with NASA Plus. Um, how should people think about it differently than the NASA TV that we've come to know and love over the last many years?
2: Ah, uh, well, NASA Plus is uh, NASA's new official ad-free on-demand streaming service, kind of like uh, a Netflix, but uh, but NASA, and so it has you know some of uh, the greatest stories ever told all in one place. Um, You know, one of our taglines is we're putting, um, you know, the universe at your fingertips. So it's premium content. It's an official home for live broadcasts and, you know, tons of NASA's infamous archival that goes over decades. So I'm really excited to have it all in one place so people can find it.
0: And what was kind of the inspiration for the for the idea that that you needed to relaunch this in a, in essence? I mean it could, because it's not just a rebranding of what you had been doing before, it's uh yeah. I think it's more of a transition from linear content to more on demand. Yep. Is that about right?
2: Yep, yep. So, uh, so when I got here, you know, I I come from the private sector, I'm a TV person, right? I was a television executive for almost 20 years out in LA. And I came out here and I was honored to take this task on and I knew it was going to be a massive effort. The great news is I didn't have to do it by myself. We had tons of content already there. It was just a matter of going around and collecting, you know, all this amazing content that they had been making for years now um also looking at some of the future missions and what we have coming up and also like current activities as well looking at okay how can we make an amazing documentary how can we tell this nasa story through you know resources that we already have you know this was we didn't go out i i didn't have a budget we didn't have a budget to do this it was a matter of what can we do what can we work with you know what we already have and uh, it's you know, it's, it's incredible. Um, the difference between, you know, linear TV and what we have now is that everything's on demand. You can watch it when you want to watch it. It's free. There's no subscription required. There's obviously no ads. And it's, you know, one of the things that I'm personally proud of is family friendly, right? Like there aren't that many places you can go to um, as far as a streaming service is concerned that's family friendly, 100%. So it's something that I'm really excited for the future generation to uh, see.
0: And the, the new relaunched app is one way people can get access to NASA+. Plus. I must say, the app, the UX is better than most commercial streaming services apps that I've oh, seen. thank
2: you. I, wow.
0: It really is. I, I mean, talk, talk a bit about how you approach that and what you prioritized as you decided to, to uh, redo the app.
2: Yes, and, and I will say it's a tremendous uh, uh, team effort. You know, I'm gonna give a shout out Jason Townsend who, you know, was kind of leading the overall team for the app development, you know, as well as the web modernization. You know, it was, there, there were several things happening at once. I was brought on to do NASA Plus, so handling kind of all the overall layout and the content and kind of getting new stuff on there, treating it as it were like a, a network, right? And then, of course, we had our web modernization team. So it's been tested. They went through, you know, several, you know, changes over the years. But this is something that we can all be proud of. And, yeah, it's, it's about, you know, kind of stepping into the times and really showing, you know, people that we, we know what's cool and we're going to do that.
0: Um, talk about how, how you went about developing this with no budget. Was this pretty much all internal? Did you have some contract support? Yeah. How would you go about it?
2: Internal. I mean, it's a lot, you know, it's funny coming from the private sector, you know, I, I worked in documentaries, startup, you, you literally, you learn how to do something with, with, with nothing. And the thing that we have at NASA is talent and we have creativity. I will say it's the most creative place I've ever worked already, hands down, because you're, you know, you, you kind of have to NASA, right? You, you have something you're like, okay, how can we do this? And so it's looking, okay, we have an amazing team here. So I can go to that team and say, here's what I need to do. Let's try and figure out how to get there. And I was able to do that. I mean, working across the enterprise at NASA, I mean, there's centers all over. It isn't just, you know, headquarters here. You know, I'm working with Goddard, I'm working with Johnson, Kennedy, you know, all the centers were part of this. And so that was kind of the most beautiful thing about this is really seeing the enterprise come together, you know, cause we all wanted this to happen, you know? And uh, so it's something that we're, you know, really proud of as, a, as an agency.
0: And you said earlier, this is mainly a new way to present a ton of content that you already had and make it more Mm -hmm. accessible. I I wonder, though, having these new channels and content delivery mechanisms, does it change the way NASA thinks about how it creates new content or create new opportunities for you to, to make new stuff?
2: Absolutely. So, I mean, already, you know when I first started this job, I looked at it and I was like, okay, well, obviously we're going to need to figure out, you know, distribution and how we're all working to differently, you know? And, uh, and so that's that those methods are, have already been established from day one. Now it's more of, okay, how do we create content differently? You know, as far as, you know, putting together outlines creative um, you know, and going through and looking at it from like a more premium uh, point of view. Um, because it's all about storytelling. And it's how we tell a story in the great, the, you know, thing that I'm extremely grateful for every day is the fact that we have talented people here already, you know, and, and that they did this, you know, not me. I just know how to kind of pull the levers, you know.
0: I know it's early days since the launch, but what kind of audience feedback have you gotten so far? Or Are you able to see anything in analytics that shows that people yeah. like this better?
2: So that's something that I've been tracking daily, and we've gotten some great feedback. Obviously, there are little bugs here and there. That's just how it is. That's tech, you know. But as far as feedback, everybody loves it, you know. Um, I, I will say as, as a parent, um, just hearing people say, oh, my gosh, there's a place, there's kids' content, there's NASA kids' content. I'm like, yes, you know, schools are watching it. You know, I was talking to a pediatric doctor recently. They're like, oh, yeah, I actually showed, like, kids at the hospital this. You know, it's incredible, you know, it's, it's, yeah, you couldn't, uh, it, the launch was, was, you know, seamless, you know, and, and now we're looking at it as any, you know, uh, streaming platform does, okay, what can we move around? What can we make more effective? How, you know, how, how do we look at this moving forward? And so that's something that we're constantly monitoring.
0: Yeah, and then finally, that's my next question. What what next? Do you have any immediate plans yeah. for, for what the roadmap is for improvements?
2: yes yes so uh you know we have obviously we we launched several new series we have one more documentary on sonifications which i'm really excited about from the content side of things and as far as you know overall rollout i'm going to be tracking you know analytics really looking at what's working and what's not working because again it's i'm incredibly mindful of budget right like we didn't go you know it's it's we we're, we're working with what we got here and so looking at space right like space that's what costs money in streaming so looking at okay this this series isn't doing so hot let's pull it off you know let's let's make room for something new um, looking at live events how is that all working what are people watching and where and when and you know how do we put it on the site so it's really fascinating some of the data that i've already been getting in you know, and there's some surprises, right? Like I, I, I had no clue that, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me. So, and I'm, I'm just glad that people are enjoying it.
0: Rebecca Sermons is executive producer for NASA TV, now NASA Plus. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. The IRS says it's putting billions of dollars of multi-year modernization funds to good use top of the list is rebuilding its workforce and updating legacy IT systems to improve service to taxpayers. But it's also dealing with lawmakers who successfully cut IRS funding in the Inflation Reduction Act earlier this year and are pushing for further cuts. For an update on where the IRS stands on hiring and some long overdue tech upgrades, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the IRS commissioner, Danny Warfel.
8: I think I start with how are the operation's going. And are we answering the phones? Are we meeting people effectively in our walk in centers? And right now, the answer to that question is yes. You know, we have had significant success in hiring the customer service part of our workforce that was understaffed for years that predated the Inflation Reduction Act. So the first five or 6,000 hires under the Inflation Reduction Act immediately got deployed into our call center and were able to turn our call response performance around dramatically from a 20% probability of getting through to the IRS to a near 90% probability from a 30-minute wait time on average to under a three-minute wait time on average. Um, So I try to focus when I think about hiring, not like how many employees are we going to hire, but are we going to achieve the mission? And so from a customer service standpoint, I look back on what we've done. We have to keep making sure that we're maintaining the right size. But so far, the impact has been positive. Now we're really focused on making sure we have the right number of enforcement personnel We have a remit and ambition to make sure that we are identifying the increasing number of wealthy filers, that's individuals, large corporations, complex partnerships that are evading their tax responsibility. And we need to collect from them what is owed. And uh, there are more issues of tax evasion than we have people right now to identify and track. So we have to build That part of our workforce. And we released uh, job announcements across the summer. And then I think we've completed our job announcement for the most part, all of our major job announcements earlier this fall. And it's been a very busy fall. Uh, Recruiting events, hiring events, interviews. We've started to bring people on, but I would expect hiring activity on the enforcement side to ramp up as we enter into 2024.
4: Obviously today's theme is about risk management and I just wanted to ask you about one big risk that I guess is ultimately out of the IRS's hands. It's Congress and the shrinking inflation reduction act funds. You know, we went from eighty to sixty roughly and you know they're they're contemplating a fourteen billion dollar cut from there. Recognizing that it is a, a shifting number, uh, what can you do to you know, win over lawmakers, show them that the iris is making a good return on investment, and ultimately make sure you guys have the funds to do everything that you want to do?
8: I think there's two things we need to do. One is develop as we have an agenda that is unassailable and shouldn't be objectionable. And then we have to deliver quickly on that agenda to demonstrate that we can spend the money wisely And that agenda really has three things. One is uh, you should be easily able to reach the IRS when you need the IRS. Two is we should be able to identify the growing number of wealthy individuals and large corporations and complex partnerships that are evading their taxes and collect from them what is owed. And third, we should address the growing risk of tax scams and protect honest taxpayers from these scams and root out the nefarious uh, actors that are perpetrating them. That is our agenda. Again, it should not be objectionable. It's very core our mission. It, it should be seen as nonpartisan. It is nonpartisan and will benefit America, uh, especially people that need to reach the IRS because they're dealing with complex tax laws. We should be reachable. So part one, do we have the right agenda that Congress and the American people can get behind? I think we do. And then the second part is delivering on that agenda. And saying, if you provide those funds and you don't claw them back, we will be able to be more accessible. We will help voters in your district or voters in your state get through to the IRS and resolve their issues and have a very positive uh, experience with the IRS. And we've demonstrated, and can we demonstrate that if you retain those funds, your voters, your constituents, will have a positive experience when they engage the IRS? Can we demonstrate that we can identify, for example, millionaires and billionaires that owe back taxes that haven't paid? And then can we demonstrate that with this money, we can go get that money that is owed And so far, we've made progress on that as well. And can we take steps working with stakeholders to protect taxpayers from scams? And we are increasingly outlining a set of steps that we believe are absolutely critical to help honest taxpayers, in particular vulnerable populations, from being exploited by tax scammers. And again... I think it's a very compelling case to say with these funds, we're going to protect honest taxpayers from risks and economic threats – And these are the types of funds that should be kept with the IRS, not pulled back.
4: You were saying how communicating the IT modernization and how that ultimately ties back to better service to taxpayers. Uh, You mentioned recently before uh, lawmakers, the individual master file, the improvements being made there. I think the goal is April 2024, after the filing season, do some work there. Can you just shed a little bit more light on what ultimately the timeline is and how that will translate into better service to taxpayers?
8: Yeah. I'm glad you asked the question. I mean, I start with the reason why the individual master file is so important, and that is the large underlying system at the IRS that essentially processes every individual tax return. So every individual tax return that comes in ends up in the individual master file, and the individual master file basically says, is a balance due or is a refund to be issued? Why is it so important that this is modernized? Because if we want to give taxpayers a fully digital experience, if we want them to experience the same type of thing when they go on their favorite online banking platform, they can get everything done. They can see what balance. They can see where their refund is. They can see if there's a flag on their account that they need to deal with, whatever it happens to be. And importantly, if they want to know if the person that just called claiming to be the IRS saying, you owe money, go to your online account and you can see your status to know whether you're being scammed or not. All of that is possible if we have a modern individual master file that is feeding information safely into that web environment. On an old system that's cobalt based with non standard data that does not have that kind of readiness to move information safely and cleanly into a web environment, we'll never get to that online banking vision that we have. And so that's why it's so important to update the individual master file. Now, the good news is that a lot of work has gone into this over the years and we are planning after the next filing season to turn on uh, the modern IMF. The legacy IMF will still exist just in case, but after this filing season, so from April to next filing season, we will run the modern IMF platform and make sure that it operates well. And then eventually we will close down the old IMF platform for good. And that is all happening starting this spring. So it's a very exciting time And uh, as we move into this next phase, taxpayers should start to see increasing functionality on that individual account and being able to get more and more stuff done with the IRS without ever picking up the phone or without ever walking into a walk-in center. We're excited about that.
4: I know it's very recent, but the president's AI executive order, you mentioned it briefly. When you talked about hiring, you've talked about kind of the data and AI experts, you know, slicing and dicing the data, getting to smarter, more impactful audits. Just seeing this, you know, demand signal and this fast-moving technology, what do you see the role of AI in the IRS in the the short-term future?
8: Well, I think I start with we have to be very judicious and thoughtful. We have to engage stakeholders to make sure that we are approaching AI and IRS operations in a way that balances good stewardship, right? We have to think about AI ethics. We have to think about are the things that we're doing uh, completely consistent with the taxpayer bill of rights, and so it's for us, it's absolutely essential that if we're going to deploy AI in IRS operations, that we're looking at it from every angle to make sure that we're protecting taxpayer rights. And If we do that and we do it successfully, then we can deploy AI in a way that 's going to benefit taxpayers it 's going to, if we deploy it successfully into the call center and we 've started to it 's going to mean less wait times on the call center it 's going to mean more automated options where they can get their issue resolved in minutes or seconds uh, depending on the issue and As you alluded to in your question, it could also mean that our enforcement on wealthy filers is more sophisticated and more impactful. And it could mean that it would be more difficult for a a sophisticated taxpayer to evade their taxes because we're keeping pace by leveraging uh, technology effectively. But again, I start with, and I think this is a huge part of why the executive order was issued, that as a federal agency, we have a responsibility to deploy AI very thoughtfully, very cautiously, and make sure that we are taking the citizens' perspective into account as we deploy, and we're committed to doing that.
0: That's Danny Werfel, the IRS Commissioner, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. You can find an extended version of this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom Temin.